The world is a, a mixed up place, isn't it, really, when you think about it? I think over the last month, what has happened in the last month? October, on the one hand, was quite a successful month for the world. We had, for example, the first sub-two-hour marathon ever run. A, a sort of psychological and physical barrier that men and women for years have been seeking to try and beat. And finally, it was beaten. We had the giving of the Nobel Peace Prize to a Prime Minister whose name I struggle to pronounce, but who worked to end a conflict of over 20 years. We had the first all-women spacewalk from the International Space Station. When you look back over the month, there are a number of articles in the news which you could see that would point us to progress. We're moving forward. We're making things better in all these sorts of different ways. But then you look again and you're reminded that last month there were 39 migrants who set off from East Asia whose journey would end with them being locked in a refrigerated trailer to die. You look back and you see that after all of the hard work of many different nations put into it, a poor decision has led ISIS to regain a stronghold in northern Iraq. You look out at the protests and the violence and the disruption that's going on in Hong Kong. For every advancement or step of progress that we see in the world, there seems to be another two steps that are taking us backwards. When we look out on such a divided and uncertain world, what hope is there? What hope can we have? What security or safety is there? Is there any way for us to lift ourselves out of this cycle of uh, destruction and brutality that we seem to be stuck in? Well, Genesis 4 gives us the start of this cycle that we find ourselves in. It shows us this divide that's been there with us right from the very beginning. And right at the end of the chapter, it gives us a little glimmer of hope. In fact, the only reasonable hope that we can have in face of our situation. First, we see human genius at work. We see the progress of humanity. Now, if you look at uh, verse 17 onwards, you get this little account of Cain and his genealogy. Remember, Cain is the man who's murdered Abel, his brother. Why did he murder him? Basically, because he hated him. And because of that, God has sent him away even further from his presence. Cain is now a wanderer out on earth. And yet, God's grace to Cain still persists. God is still going to protect Cain. God has put a mark on him so that no one will hurt him or damage him. Cain is protected, and so his family line continues. Cain and his wife have a son, Enosh. And Enosh has a, uh, Enoch has a son. Uh, and down through Enoch's line, by the time you get to the fifth generation, you get this man called Lamech. And Lamech's family is somewhat rather incredible. Lamech's family, you know at Christmas, when you get those Christmas cards with, a, with an A4 sheet inside from, from some family that you know from many, many moons ago, and they, they give you the, all the details of the wonderful things that their children have managed to achieve in the past year. Well, if Lamech was sending one of those Christmas cards, he would be the winner of that unspoken competition. Him and his family were achievers, big achievers. Uh, look at his sons. First, he's got Jabal. 
Uh, and Jabal is the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Jabal was a farmer. He was the farmer of farmers. In fact, he was the father of farmers. He was the man to go to if you wanted to learn, okay, how can I stop being just a hunter-gatherer? How can I stop being totally dependent upon the weather and the seasons and the thing that the land will give me? How can I get a farm? How can I raise livestock? How can I be a little bit more self-sufficient? Jabal is the man to go to for instruction. He was the father of those who raise livestock. And he's got an incredible brother as well, Jubal. He's the father of all who play the harp and flute, both string instruments and wind instruments. You could say he was the father of music. There's no other record of musical instruments being used before this. And then you've got Tubal Cain. He's the man to go to if you need any sort of metalwork doing. He's the man who forges all kinds of tools out of both bronze and iron. And the fact that these guys are described as the fathers of these things shows that they're not just quite good at them. He's not just quite a good farmer. He's not just quite a good musician. He's not just quite a good metal worker. There's a sense in which these men are instrumental, if you excuse the pun. They're instrumental in the development of the culture and arts. Instrumental in farming. Instrumental in metalwork. Much like we might say, for example, that Thomas Edison or Benjamin Franklin was the father of electricity. So, Jabal was the father of farming. Jubal was the father of music and so on. Having been made in the image of God, mankind was to go out into the world to subdue it, to rule over it, to flourish, to be blessed, to exercise their gifts and their talents and their abilities. And with Cain's descendants, Lamech's family, that's exactly what you see happening. And it's what we continue to see happening today. It's because of this pattern in the life of, in the, in the way that humans live. It's because of humans' ability to use their gifts, to pool their resources, to think critically about the world in which they live in, to subdue it and to rule over it, that we've seen things like Eliud Kipchoge running the sub-two-hour marathon. That we've seen things like the first all-women spacewalk. That we've seen things like the Nobel Peace Prize being given, and so on. All the many achievements that we look out on in this world. Here this morning, most of us will be sat with a smartphone in our pockets that has more computing power than all of NASA had put together when they put a man on the moon. Most of us here will have benefited from the healthcare, the developments in childbirth, for example. Probably, if you if you took the childbirth statistics of just a hundred years ago, you would have at least a quarter of the room not even present today because they would have died before the age of ten, perhaps even before the age of one. There's all sorts of ways in which we benefit from the way that humans make progress. And see how it's not just Christians who are making that progress. God doesn't limit these gifts and abilities and talents to just his people. All people on earth have these abilities and these talents in order to help the human race progress and move forward. Humanity has been a powerful force for good in this world. Just like Cain's own family, Jabal, Jubal and Tubal Cain were. A powerful force for good. The future looks bright. 
That is, until Lamech steps onto the scene. Remember, these three brothers were sons of Lamech. And immediately after those hopeful verses describing all that his sons are able to do, we get a glimpse of what Lamech himself is like. Verse 23 and 24, you get this. It's a poem, actually. A little ditty that Lamech has made to himself. Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. You can kind of imagine Lamech skipping down the road, singing this little ditty to himself that he's made up as he rushes home to tell his his wife and his children about just how fantastic he is. And what's fantastic about him? What does he want you to know about? What is he delighting in, in this poem? Nothing less than the ferocity of his revenge. What he delights in, what he takes joy in, is the harshness and the severity of his own response towards those who have been seen to offend him. You thought Cain was a nasty piece of work? You thought Cain was immoral because he killed his brother just for for no reason, really? Lamech wants you to know that Cain is a pussycat compared to him. Cain is a wimp. Cain is a soft touch. Cain is a big girl's blouse compared to Lamech and the ferociousness of his revenge. And isn't it true that just like Lamech, uh, that just like Lamech's sons have become a pattern of world history, Lamech himself is also there in the pattern of world history. Yes, the past hundred years have brought us incredible fruitfulness in human flourishing. But it's also brought us a sharp reminder of the depths of human brutality. The First World War was known as the war to end all wars. And within that same generation followed the Second World War. Closely followed by various other wars that have rocked the world. We've seen the Holocaust. We've seen Hiroshima. We've seen Korea. We've seen Vietnam. We've seen Sudan. We've seen the killing fields in Cambodia. We've seen Rwanda. We've seen over 3,000 people eliminated on a single day on the 11th of September 2001. We've seen Afghanistan. We've seen Iraq and Syria. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? It just never stops. However much progress the world seems to make, that pattern of Lamech's brutality has continued. And it's all too easy for us to consider, ah, that, that brutality is out there. It's over in the Middle East. It's over in America. It's over there with the politicians down in London. It's out there. That's where the brutality lies. But if we're honest, just like we're able to see the brilliance of Lamech's sons in our life, we're able to use our talents and gifts and abilities in different ways, don't you also see the pattern of Lamech in your own heart? Don't you see 
the sudden outburst of road rage when somebody cuts you up? Don't you see yourself designing sharp words with a specific intent of inflicting maximum damage when you're stuck in an argument with someone? Lamech is there in the individual who's brilliant in so many ways and yet whose life is a moral failure. Lamech is there in the family who've got all sorts of achievements and trophies on the mantelpiece and yet can't seem to love one another and get on with one another. Genesis has already shown us the cause of this mess that's in the world. It's already shown us the cause of this mess that's in our hearts. The mess is because although we've been made in God's image, we've rejected his rule over us. We want to be the boss. We want to rule. We don't want to submit to him. And this is the reason that when we look back over the course of history, on the one hand, yes, we see the incredible progress of humanity. But on the other, we realise that we've not moved an inch, not an inch, in terms of dealing with the problems of our human nature. The answer to the problem in our hearts is not education. If you teach people how to be good to one another, it will not make them good to one another. The answer is not a new political ideology. The answer is not a new prime minister. The answer is not a universal basic income. The answer is not capitalism or democracy. The answer is not tolerance or technology. Any of those things, as good as they might be, will only ever address a symptom. They will only ever touch the outsides of our lives. But the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is not what we do, but why we do it. That's the real nub of the issue. If we're going to fix this mess that we're in, how do we get to the heart? How do we touch that which is inside of us? Is there any hope? Well, Genesis 4 ends on a note of hope. It gives us a hint. This chapter and... uh, Well, it it summarises the opening of all these chapters in Genesis, uh, chapter 1 to 4. They form a unit, and the last few verses strike a note of optimism with practicality. Verse 25 and 26. Adam and Eve, uh, Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son. And he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. So, Adam and Eve are granted another son. He's a replacement for their godly son, Abel, who's been killed. And they call him Seth. A gift. He's been granted. He's granted, given in the place of Abel. And Seth has a son, Enosh. You get this new family line being traced through. And this family line is different to Cain's line because Cain's line, as brilliant as they were, continued to reject God. Whereas Seth's line, Seth and Enosh, leads to calling on the name of the Lord. In other words, they begin to pray. Seth and Enosh and their descendants begin to pray to God. What do they pray for? There's no explicit thing in the text that tells us exactly what they were praying for. But there are some clues here as we read through the narrative. 
you'll remember that as we left chapter 3, where God cursed Adam and Eve, sent them out of his presence, he sent them with a promise. There was a promise that the seed of the woman, their offspring, would be the one who would crush the serpent's head. And the tension that you see in chapter 4, especially the beginning of the chapter, is this question of, okay, now there's two sons, Cain and Abel, I wonder which one will be the serpent crusher. And the shock value of chapter 4 comes when you see that the godly one, Abel, who you think, oh, well, surely he's the one likely to be the serpent crusher. He's then killed by his ungodly brother, Cain. That's the shock value of chapter 4. The hope of the serpent crusher is gone. Well, not completely demolished. Perhaps it might be one of Cain's descendants. Perhaps they might bear that role. Although Cain's descendants are brilliant in many ways, although they bring much progress and development, there's no suggestion that any of them are this promised descendant that God is going to give. None of them are the serpent crusher. That's why it ends with Lamech. Just this heap of immorality and brutality. Back to Adam and Eve then, what's going on with them? Ah, well, God's given another son. A gift in place of the godly son, Abel. Seth, what's he going to be like? Well, Seth doesn't really do much, but Seth has a son. What's Enosh going to be like? Similarly, Enosh doesn't do all that much. What the narrative is showing us is that this promise of the serpent crusher is going to take a little bit longer than perhaps some people might have hoped. It's not going to be these first one or two generations. It wasn't Abel. It's not Seth. It's not Enosh. They're not the ones to fix things. They're not the ones to make things right again. And so people begin to call on the name of the Lord. They begin to call on God not just praying for their care or provision, not just praying for their own safety, but, but to call on his name, to ask him based on who he is, based on the promises he's given. God, this is what you've shown us, to, shown us that you are like. God, this is what you've told us you will do. You will send a serpent crusher. You will send someone to fix this problem. These are the promises you've made This is how you've promised to act. We pray, Lord, act in accordance with your name. And so these are really the very first prayers in the whole Bible. Prayers for God to do for his people the things that he has promised. Seth and Enosh and others begin to pray because they realize their own weakness. They believe their own weakness that God has shown them. And they believe as well the promises that God has given them. That he is for them. And so they pray based on those promises that God would rescue them from their sin and would crush the serpent who was the cause of their temptation. In other words, these prayers are gospel prayers. Recognising their own weakness, their own inability to escape from sin, And the need for God to act in order to rescue. They're praying the gospel. They're praying the promises of God. The good news 
of the Bible is that although humanity will never be able to rescue ourselves from this mess that we're in, God is able to rescue us. And he has promised to rescue us. Seth and Enosh, when they were praying those prayers, they were looking forward. When, Lord, are you going to send this seed, this offspring, this descendant who will rescue us? You and I, when we pray this same prayer, we look backward. We look back to Jesus Christ. He is the one, he is the descendant, he is that seed who came to sort out this whole situation. And like Adam, Jesus Christ was tempted. Only Jesus' temptation was not in the safety and the the lusciousness of a green garden. Jesus' temptation was in the distress and the emptiness of a wilderness. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Just like Abel, Jesus was killed because people hated him for his godly actions. And just like Abel, just like Abel's blood cried out to God, so also Jesus' blood cries out to God. But there's a difference. Abel's blood cried out saying, guilty. Cain is guilty. Jesus' blood cries out saying, paid, finished, completed, forgiven. And the work that he does now, Jesus Christ sends his spirit to live with his people in order to change and transform them. Not just change their actions, not just change them outwardly, but to change their hearts, making them new creations. Not just glossing over a surface symptom of the problem, but reaching where no one else can. He's dealing with the problem of the human heart. He's getting to the heart of the human problem. Now, in view of all that we've seen in Genesis 1 to 4, we've each got a decision to make. We've seen from these chapters that the problems of this world don't come from any deficiency in God. The problem of the difficulties in your life, the problem of war when we look out on the world, the problem of uncertainty, the ever-present problem of death, that those are not deficiencies in God. They're not here because God did something wrong. They're here as a result of our rejection of him. And our rejection of him is a repeated pattern that started with Adam but continues in our lives today. It's a pattern that makes us guilty. It makes you guilty before God. And that by rights, each one of us should face a judgment from this just and fair God who loves this world that he made. But the good news is that God, even from the beginning, has made promises to reverse the effects of sin. And that Jesus Christ, as the sinless Son of God, lived and died as our new representative, taking the place of Adam. And Jesus is the one who has crushed that serpent's head in order to free us from the slavery of sin, in order to enable us to seek and obey God. The question then that each of us has to answer is, will you accept that work of Christ? Will you accept that offer of forgiveness? Will you call on the name of the Lord so that you might be saved from the judgment that you face? Will you stop trying to save yourself? 
Will you stop trying to dig yourself out of the hole that this world is in? And will you trust in the salvation offered by Jesus? And that's available nowhere else. In truth, in all seriousness, without any note of exaggeration, the only hope, the only hope that we have amidst the mess that this world is in is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to throw ourselves upon the work that he is doing to reverse all the effects of sin that so ravage this world and our lives.